Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Mean Team. Mega Bears Fan. A composite show archive segments from previous episodes that got cut due to time. Episode 301 of the Tank U, Makalua, the Mian team, fight and lay ran. The four new global units that was introduced to the game. The drone, we've got the pike and shot, we've got the supply convoy, and of course, the spec ops unit. Are they good? Are they bad? Are they... What are people's thoughts? Maybe it's because I haven't played a Warmonger game yet, but I haven't built any of them so far. I think that the the pike and shot in particular, though, is quite a good unit because it fills a much-needed spot between the pikeman and the AT crew. The problem is anti-mounted is still on the weak side globally. That's true. The one advantage pike and shot do have is they unlock, I believe, on the same tag or one tag later than the musketman, and they do not require niter, so you can always build them even if you don't have the resources. Yeah, that's true, and they do have the base 55 strength. The only problem yeah. is when they're fighting anything other than mounted, they take a pretty hefty penalty, and that's unfortunate. But yeah, you could work around that a bit. Got a great general on there, and try to stay it's away from okay. melee units, because melee units will ruin you. Pike and shot, okay, situationally. Then we've got the drone, which is just a observation balloon upgrade. Oh, no, I like the drone. I was doing that the other day in a game. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, I'm going to park my artillery over here with the drone, and I'm just going to, you can't hit me from here, la 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 la. This is before the artillery had the upgrade where they could shoot from that distance. Always good to have the artillery out of range. Yeah, the balloon and the drone are both nice units. The drone's pretty light, but I mean, if you're playing that late, that's it's a nice unit to have. Especially if you already have promoted your siege weapon significantly, because then they really start to hurt. <laughs> Start killing units with that at high range, too, and then kill this. Oh, yes. It's yes. reminiscent of the arty from Civ 5 at that point. Yeah, because this way you can end up with you have the drone with the artillery way back here. You still have room for a line of units in front, and you're still out of range of the city if your artillery is promoted enough. Yeah, and if you have grape shot, the liability <laughs> against the units just isn't there. Yeah. yeah. There's also the plus five of uh, Mars strength to adjacent siege class units. Ah, extend their life just that little while longer. <laughs> It's true, I still had some that I hadn't upgraded yet that came in with the drone, with the artillery, and here's a couple. What's before artillery? Is it still the bomb bars? And it's like, but hey, you're still useful now. Mm. My only issue with the drone is the image they use, it's not a scouting drone, it's an attack drone. And we use drones for very different things in the real world than scouting for bombard units. Just that little bit of a disconnect for me. Yeah, they could have called it like a UAV or something. And yeah. It would have been pretty similar to in function. But that's just me being pedantic. 
Then the other support unit is the Supply Convoy, which is a medic upgrade. Has anyone actually used this? Not yet, no. It's no, hard to so, play into that late of the game and like still have anything matter. So yeah, I've only had one game that's gone far enough where I even had that as an option. So <laughs> yes, from the drone in the atomic era to the uh, supply convoy in the modern, it looks like a great unit. You can easily have your end game units, even melee, moving four plus again or five if you have the policy card. So that's pretty significant. It'll speed up your end game, but <laughs> that's good because the end game's pretty slow by default. Yeah, my issue with the supply convoy is less with the supply convoy as opposed to if I'm taking out cities, then if I'm kind of on a water-based map here, then I've got my battleships and for the bombard, and then I just move in you know, either a clad uh, or I could even move in just any kind of land unit that might be escorted, for example, by the battleship. Or if it's across land, by that point, I've probably got a pretty decent air force. Mm. And so I really don't need the supply convoy because what it's providing the support for are not the units that are going to need healing because they're not going to be in combat very often. They're just going to move in and take a city, which, for example, could be a tank that's outside of the range of any kind of bombard and everything, and it just moves in and it's done. Yeah, but you can just start the convoy next to that tank, and that tank gets an extra movement point. There's not much downside then. You might as well make a convoy or two just for that purpose. I don't know. If the cities are close enough together, the tank's already got five movement. I'm not really certain I'm going to be needing that six. Well, yeah, now it is six or six or seven, depending on what you're setting up. That can make a difference sometimes. It's helpful. Well, sometimes, sure, but as, as a general rule, I just... Ugh. Where else are you putting your hammers like game, Dan, if you're on a conquest spree? I, I think this is worth an investment of one or two of these, if you have the tech for them. You don't need a lot of them. And keep in mind, some of the units have the ability to drag support that's attached at the speed of that unit. So if you have like a light cavalry class unit that's upgraded or something along those lines, you can easily just attach the convoy to that and have it move around at whatever top speeds uh, your unit has and just cover ground even more quickly. There's no downside to that other than the hammers to build it. And you'll have your army by then. I mean, I know it's a medic upgrade. I kind of feel like I might actually construct a supply convoy. As compared to, say, a pike and shot, we're probably end up with a pike and shot because it would be an upgraded pikeman. Because at that point, I oh, I I need something to deal with these mounted units. But I don't just in the case of the supply convoy, it it definitely can be useful. But just more often than not, I'm thinking, eh, it's nice. Yeah, kind of one of those how I find it situational and only more situational than the pike and shot as compared to any of these other global units, simply because it's modern era. I mean, I guess if you were starting like a later game start, and I could totally see using this from the beginning, because then you wouldn't already have that other existing infrastructure, either naval and or air, in order to go in and kind of do that that final work where the siege from either the air or the siege from the naval bombard has already done the taking down of the defenses. And all I need is that melee unit to go in in that final action of taking the city. I mean, you could just have leftover artillery that's... Uh upgraded from prior siege and is well promoted so now you have artillery armies or whatever you just throw this on there and they go up to like four plus movement with your drone or balloon and that's fine you'll, you'll cover a lot of ground with that even if you build air in addition on another front you will just mow things down with this kind of setup at least in single player human players are probably have a better answer but the ai will just get chewed up yeah, well, then in that case, you're trying to not only protect those units that you've spent gosh knows how many errors and how many turns promoting and protecting, but to extend their usefulness as well. Yeah, then in that case, it's definitely worth it. You can end the game with that. <laughs> like, there's no question you can end the game with that. You can run just that artillery with the support supply convoys and range boosts, and you you can win the game on deity with just that. 
Sure enough. <laughs> well, you got to take the city somehow, so you need a melee unit. Well, in of there, course, but... but you like everything is dead, and the city is redlined. Like you just pick something and run it in there. Yeah, just have a sneaky tank lying around. <laughs> it, you could have like a sneaky classical era horseman. <laughs> it would be fine. Oh, oh wow! <laughs> this stuff shreds so much that it doesn't matter. Is what I'm saying. Like you could just stand that behind everything else, and then run into the city every time, and then just move your siege of death up. Okay, so we've talked about the drone, the pike and shot, and the supply convoy, and that leaves us with the spec ops unit. Uh, it's it, okay. I mean, the power drop's nice, but... Nukes it, and paratroopers, what... an all-time favorite of mine in any game, they're both available. And this just looks like another way. Or bombers, for that matter. It's one of those units where, I don't know, I think in high-tier play, it's going to be really useful if you get a sort of synergy between that and sort of jumping off points and sort of human human play. It just I don't really see the use of it when you're just pitting against the AI. There are better units you can use. Everything works against the AI though. Like That's if true. you use that same argument, you're cutting out like eighty percent of the units in the game or all the units in the game in, in some sense. Relative to fighting somebody with a pulse, it, it's too easy to mop the AI. Well, I think it ties well to talk about the Spec Ops right after the Supply Convoy, because the Spec Ops can attack a support unit directly without having to eliminate the combat unit first. That is the part... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> I think it's very strong in uh, multiplayer, but I don't see much use for it in single player. It's so I mean, fun, though. Like, yeah, I haven't tried I it yet, but this. I have no doubt. Like, I can just picture nuking, like, three, four cities and uh, paradropping next to all of them and taking them at the same time and, like, insta-flipping yeah. loyalty... In a huge radius, like or that, just, no, it's, it's just going to be good times. Like, you don't win- need to do it, but this isn't a matter of need. In winning a domination victory in one turn with that, something like that. That that would be fun. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the spec op pair drop ability allows movement from a friendly tile to a location seven tiles away, or twelve, as starting from an aerodrome or an airstrip. So I'm thinking kind of in a land based situation. For example, rather than oh, I, you know, I got to get rid of this carpet of doom because sure I could go in and I could take this city, but then there are all these enemy units on the map that can go and take that city back almost right away. So rather than having to even necessarily use bombard capabilities of my bombers, which I'd rather use to attack the city, just move in the spec op, have that pair drop eliminate that support unit first and then go in and start bombarding with either your air units or maybe perhaps even you know some siege units easier to get rid of that carpet of doom off the map to then continue the bombard on the city and then go take the city yeah plus it also caps off the scout line and it's nice to have not just a quote-unquote modern scout but something that also has an ability that's different than anything else yeah yeah, I will give it that. Like, it is nice that scouts, sort of like the first unit you could build, could take you pretty much all the way through the game. I do like keeping my units around in there since the start. Although and that does in- limit their strength from a combat promotion standpoint. That is true. But that's fine. I mean, it's a specialty unit, and it serves its purpose in that regard. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, this it. isn't something you'll want to spam to uh, no. fight a front line, because uh, looking at the strength compared to contemporary units, that's going to get mowed down even by regular infantry, especially promoted them, infantry. Yeah, I could see them being used on masses distraction mm-hmm. to sort of weaken the front line, because you have to go back and try and deal with some of those things. I guess, but they're expensive. I think you might see them like drop behind so that people can't micro their units in and out to keep them alive. I don't know about in mass, though. 
It is a little bit surprising that there's only four global units in Rise and Fall, but I think they spent yeah. most of their time creating some really interesting units for the um, unique for each civs. I think they spent the right amount of time on the units, and setting aside the argument, again, of the, well, if you're just playing single player, do you even really need any of these units? Because, you know, AI. But... <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's nice to see that there's the fleshing out of it a little more, the kind of, okay, there's this big gap in errors between one thing to another, as the case with the pipe and shot, or getting something to kind of cap off things, because it's, why do you still have this scout running around? Or why would you keep the scout on the map? It hasn't been killed yet. And of course, there's the maintenance cost, but it's just like, well, no, I'm at one point I'm going to be upgraded to uh, Spec Ops, and I don't have to spend money on it, I don't have to produce one at that point, mm. I can upgrade, it'll be cheap, not really certain you're going to need any of the scout promotions are going to make much of a difference at that point, but still, it's nice that they didn't forget about those things that everyone can go ahead and take advantage of. Recorded for episode 306, Dan Q, Makalua, the me and team. Mega Bears fan and Uber Marklar. Bizra asked the question, what is the most versatile civilization? Post number 10, Brutus 2 says, I just want to acknowledge that every post had named a different civ as most versatile. You have got to give the devs some credit for some really well-designed civs. So, yeah, there seems to be a lot of different ones coming up. Although I think right after that post, we started seeing the same couple ones getting mentioned a lot. Looks like Aztecs, Rome. Yeah, but I actually went and calculated it before the thread derailed into arguing over what the definition of versatile was. It was like Rome had eight, and Germany and Australia were a close second and third kind of a thing. In this thread, Bizrock, the opening poster, said, the nation that can deal with most of the situations... So I think really the question is, what is the situation? No. Uh, <laughs> uh, actor. You see, kids. Yeah. <laughs> I got the Mackie sigh. Victory. Well, the, the, the half sigh, half laugh. Before we maybe even get into what the arguments are, we might not even argue with ourselves on the panel here, because most of us or all of us may agree, what did everyone choose as their civilization in Civilization Six as the most versatile? And yes, we're setting aside the... Well, it's not the civilization you play. It depends on how you play the civilization. Yes, as we're just talking about all of their abilities, including the ability that the leader brings. So all of those things, improvise, adapt, and overcome. Which is the most versatile, which can deal with the most situations. Adaptable, I would say, based on the way he's phrased it, is the question that they're asking. Let's start with Uber. Who would you choose? Uh, Considering I haven't actually played every Civ in the game yet? I liked Australia the one time I played it, so yeah. I also have not played as every Civ in the game, because there are quite a lot of them, including all the DLC ones. But I think I would be kind of at a toss-up between two. Probably I I would agree with Australia. Plus 100% production is a pretty boss bonus if you're able to trigger it consistently. But the other one that I would go with is I think I would agree with a lot of the people on the forums with the Aztecs. Basically, just because getting districts out is so important. So any ability in which you can rush districts is uh, a pretty versatile thing because that literally allows you to go in any victory direction that you want. Rush campuses for science victory, rush theaters for culture victories, rush encampments for building promoted military units, etc. Is my answer going to be surprised to anybody considering the fleeing uh, every other weekend? <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, honestly, you can do so much with them. Who posted? Unpossible 251. The who almost went for it. They're great for everything except culture victory. It's, yeah, because some districts will be on places you wanted for the resorts of the national parks. 
because you have so much of the uh, appeal bonus going. Well, I do agree that Rome is pretty good, too. Okay, I am in Camp Rome for this question. Jason, on the Australia part specifically, now you said as long as you can maintain it, which is Australia keep on getting war decked, which... Mm-hmm. Or liberating cities. Yeah, liberating and cities. on higher difficulties when the AIs kill all of the city-states 30 turns into the game. That's a lot of cities that Australia can liberate. So yeah, on easier difficulties, it's a little bit harder because the AIs aren't competent enough to uh, conquer cities. So there's fewer liberations. You've got to rely on them to declare war on you, which is also going to be less likely because on the easier difficulties, you're going to be stronger than them. So Australia really shines at the higher difficulties where the AIs are conquering cities and are very aggressive. And you can go out and liberate them or just let the AIs declare war on you and then spam out a bunch of units to kick their butts back. I agree that they are versatile for that reason, but you're having to wait in order for the AI to do that, which I know, yes, in the higher difficulty levels, especially some AIs, can be very aggressive in going and capturing city-states, and you go and you liberate them, and you get this increase in production. So I placed them high, but with Rome, don't have to worry about constructing a monument. You're going to get that cultural building right away, number one. As soon as you construct a city... You're going to have roads between them, obviously, if they're not on islands, etc. Okay, you know, I, you know I, I totally get that. They got ease of trade through the trading posts. They get the housing and the amenities, their unique district. To me, Rome is more about what you do, irrespective of what everybody else is or is not doing around you, which is why I would give Rome the edge over Australia. Yeah, I've only played like one or two games with Rome, and they weren't even full games. So it could just be that I'm missing out on a lot of the strengths of Rome. But again, my top one would have been Aztecs because of the district rushing. Australia and Rome probably would have been like runners up. And then I'd have civs like Korea and stuff like that that have like research bonuses. But yeah, I, I agree that Rome is also up there as one of the better ones. And I think right now, part of the strength of Australia is something that we hope gets corrected, which is the AI still going after city-states very early, although I think that's less to do with, hmm, the AI shouldn't be targeting city-states as opposed to the city-states should be able to better defend themselves, holy crap. Yeah, (laughs) or have more mechanics earlier in the game for their suzerains to be able to effectively protect them. And certainly, yes, with the Aztecs, they spend builder charges to complete 20% of the original district costs. I think that's also its strength is still exaggerated because of the whole district cost scaling that we still have in the game. I'm not saying that if these things get addressed that they would necessarily knock Aztec out of top consideration. And even if those things aren't addressed, <laughs> I might say, now, Dan, are you making an argument based on what 2K and Fraxis might or might not do in terms of future patches, etc.? Uh, no, I'm just adding that on to the end of, once again, it's based on, in the case of Australia, what else is going on with other civilizations as compared to Rome, which has lots of things, as I outlined, that you can do just as Rome. I think the Aztec argument is stronger, even despite what I just <laughs> said with regards to the builder charges. Because in addition to that, yeah, Monty get luxury resources in his territory, provide an amenity to two extra cities. Military units receive plus one combat strength for each different luxury resource improved in Aztec lands. And so part of that is what is your luxury resource diversity. But then again, you could also just go out and conquer more lands that have different luxury resources, thereby giving you more military strength to go and take more cities. Based on the three that have been presented here, I'd be like Rome, Aztecs, Australia. Germany also looks like they're coming up a lot. I would maybe put Germany higher. Not well, I think Rome is one. The Aztec 
they lose a lot of their unique benefits if they get constrained in an early game situation. Either they can't attack because they're isolated or it's just not practical. They lose out on a lot of what makes them really good. If you can't steal builders early on, <laughs> if you can't use your Eagle Warrior at all, then their bonuses are still helpful, but they're not as good. They're just not Rome tier or as consistently useful as something like Germany, for example. Yeah, Germany, as you go down through the third, Germany does get more mentions because of their production efficiency. Yeah, Germany had at least six mentions as the primary, most versatile, and two as the, oh, in addition. Yeah. Whereas Rome had like eight. Germany and Australia had six, Aztecs had five. Japan. Yeah, I think it's fair to put Rome one because... You, it, would, you would say that since you picked that in the thread. Yeah. Well, okay, but we're we're also talking about it on the show. So <laughs> their bonuses are early, but they're also consistent. Yeah, you can lose out on usability of the Legion. So that's a small strike, but the culture lets you do things faster at a time when that's most important. It is a lot easier to get started good and keep snowballing with Rome. Yeah, you, you like they get access because they're faster culture tech tree. They can get some things earlier than most other civs nearly guaranteed as a result of that and that's not immediately obvious so they can rush to stuff knowing they can win it basically and they don't have to explicitly send trade routes to get the roads between their cities so it's a lot easier for them to move their military units throughout the entire game Mm -hmm. you can now send those traders to foreign cities that are providing you with lots of gold instead of being like oh well i have to have a road here so i'm gonna send an internal route but you don't have to do that with rome that's also very helpful throughout the entire game but it takes pretty long for roads to be much more than uh, ignoring rough terrain thing in practice, unfortunately. That's true. I do wish roads were a little bit better earlier in the game because moving a bunch of units around the map before and after wars is one of my biggest pains. Yeah, in it's the game. awful. I, mean, I pretty much just build another set of units for a multi-fronting rather than rotating because it takes so long. Yeah. And uh, since Germany was also acknowledged in the thread, yes, Germany allows you to construct one more district than the population limit would normally allow, which can definitely be beneficial. Not necessarily right away, of course. It's like, okay, my city's going to continue to grow by the time I finish constructing this district and then something else that I need, like a military unit or something. It's like, oh, you know, if your city is growing well and you've got decent land, then I don't think you're going to feel this as much or, of course, as quickly as you would feel with Rome. And then as being the leader bonuses, additional military policy slot, plus seven combat strength when attacking city-states. Well, assuming you've got some city-states nearby to attack that for additional combat against the barbarians. And then, doesn't necessarily start to wear, but it's a bit more situational. Whereas, as we were saying, Rome right from the outset is just going strong. And even if it kind of isn't as shiny... As time goes on, all the other things you've been able to do because of how much shinier it was initially is going to be difficult for another Civ in order to replicate and, and in order to catch up. So long as you capitalize on what it is that you've been able to do early on in the game as Rome, right? Because it all comes down to, and the question was, which Civ is the most versatile based on its ability? Admittedly, not necessarily whether or not the person playing that civilization can capitalize on it, whether they're an artificial intelligence controlled Civ or a human controlled Civ. Was there another Civ that was mentioned or was it those four? There's a whole Arabia bunch that came up a few times. Yeah, Arabia and a couple Greece times. Brazil. Because of the uh, extra wild card slot. Oh, yeah. I forgot. Arabia, Arabia is pretty Arabia. solid. France and England are each mentioned like once. <laughs> right. I remember when I first started playing the game, Greece was one of my favorite civs to play because of that extra wild card policy slot. That is really useful, especially at the beginning of the game. <laughs> France is interesting because they're like low tier versatile. <laughs> 
Yeah. They're not good, but they are versatile. Right. I'm actually kind of surprised, Phil, that you didn't just bring up a bunch of really militaristic civs like Scythia or Nubia or something and say, well, if you're not doing very well at one thing, you just build a bunch of units and take those things from other players. Well, Rome has that, but it also has more. So yeah. uh, just pick Rome. Yeah, true. Yeah, there were a collection of the like Scythia, Mongols, you know, that kind of thing. Like, oh, just go kill everything. It solves all the problems. Yeah, you're very versatile you... at war. Sometimes you want to get to the stuff that lets you kill things more effectively, more readily. Yeah. And you're so, win the culture victory by being the only culture left. Yeah. I, I think I also want to say that I see in at least one response the Netherlands show up. And I think the Netherlands are also a pretty versatile sieve in that they're good on multiple different map types. Because if you've got a lot of water, you're going to have a lot of room for those polders. And those polders are pretty nice, especially if you can string a bunch of them adjacent to each other. Good Unless luck. I'm playing them, in which case I'll never get any polders. <laughs> right, true. Stacking polders uh, is... <laughs> well, but all, they're also really good check. lakes. If you end up with a lot of lakes, those polders are awesome because lakes are usually in clusters of like three or four or five tiles. So you can stick a bunch of polders in there and that's pretty good. But also it's, I think they get like what, like a plus one adjacency bonus or something like that for a rivers. It kind of like Australia, you're able to put your districts in a lot of places that you wouldn't otherwise be able to put them. That's going to give them a lot of benefits. So I, I would say Netherlands probably ranks up there pretty high as well. And I've played a couple games as them and I really enjoyed them. That is why I didn't pick someone like Gilgamesh, though, by the way. Because, like, I'm picturing, okay, so what nations are good, both when you just want to rush someone out early and when you get an isolated start. And isolated starts really hurt some of the early game saves. Well, it's a downside to everybody. It's less so for some saves. So that's like a strike for things like Mongols or Gilgamesh and whatnot. Yeah, as long as you've got those barbarians spawning, Gilgamesh is really good. Gilgamesh is actually kind of better if you are isolated because it's easier to keep uh, farming barbarians for free stuff. I guess. But man, like the war carts are such a nice thing and you just lose them. Well, you use the war carts to kill barbarians, so. <laughs> I guess. It just seems so short of potential and then it seems like it's outperformed by other ships to me. It's, don't get me wrong, yeah. I, they're still good. They're just not like top three good. Right. <laughs> No, I'm not arguing that. I am saying that I'm surprised that I didn't see Gilgamesh show up I guess. a little bit more because I, I do think Gilgamesh is pretty good and he gets a science bonus. So any Civ that gets a science bonus is, I would say, like kind of by default, pretty versatile because you tech faster and tech to what you want sooner. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, there's that too. You, and the AI spams Ziggurats like crazy. I mean, I've seen Samaria be in like the modern era when I'm in the friggin' medieval era. It happens because sometimes they just put a friggin' Ziggurat on every friggin' tile and they are cruising through that tech tree. Record over episode 309. Thank you. Makalua, the me and team, Mega Bears fan, and Martin Alvito. topic from supremacy king 2 is it time to rethink how border expansions work yeah it wasn't uh, and, so five already yeah and uh i think this is basically comes down to border expansion being too slow and taking too long to fill up the map um Plus, lot, like misrepresenting where it's actually going to expand <laughs> yeah and that, also the order that he picks the tiles in come on there's a resource right there why you no take yeah yeah, I definitely agree that border expansion should be a lot faster. Well, there's uh, opportunity for strategy here that's not being utilized. 
there's no choice being made by the player. And in fact, it's interrupting yeah. player choice by misrepresenting the information. Uh, how right. you expand your city's borders could be something that really matters and something you think about each game and, and might actually pick differently depending on your situation. All of these things are factors that could matter to your decision making process and your progress in the game and just don't right now because it just arbitrarily does crap. Yeah, I'm thinking of maybe mechanics where you spend a certain amount of culture or whatever to claim tiles and then players can compete. They claim the same tiles. Does this cut into your attack progress? Because that'd be hilarious. Or um, whatever. You're, you're yeah, sure. that would maybe need to be... How that works would maybe need to be reworked. But yeah, maybe. I don't, you'd either have to have a cumulative pool of culture, just like you have with gold, or you'd have to scale it so that you're taking that out of your culture per turn. In which case, yeah, it would directly... That would uh, be interesting. Although, quite frankly, the civics right now, other than the governments, are so, at least to me, like unimportant that I feel like we probably shouldn't be doing things that further slow down progress along that tree. Oh, there's some good stuff in there, though, like access to cores and armies, access to the 50% unit upgrade cost. Yeah, well, there's like a handful of things that you beeline towards, but like everything else is just like, yeah, I'm never going to use that civic. I don't care. That can be tuned a bit in terms of the quality of the tech tree itself. But even if it isn't, anything you do with city border expansion would then cut into your progress towards those things that you're otherwise beelining and those things are valuable True. so you would have a trade-off immediately well two things and uh, the buzzing says in the chat oh god i would be so if i could just say which tile next but not buy them i think for some people like perhaps new players that could be kind of overwhelming oh my gosh what tile do i want then go ahead and let the game pick that for you but yes the algorithm should be a lot better to mackie's point yeah, just have it well, default that, and then yeah, change it like your tile will work how is that any different than like assigning what tiles a citizen works? Like most new players aren't going to do that. They're just going to let the AI do it for them. So it's the same sort of thing where it's just an extra strategy and ability for high level players. Maybe you spend a certain amount of culture or something like that to tell the city what tile you want to annex. And then you still have to spend the weight for the culture to actually annex it as opposed to just doing it right away with gold. But I don't see how that's really that difficult for new players considering that you know you could just have the ai handle it automatically like it does now it would be less optimal so that would be a reason for the player to want to go in and do that just as long as it's not some annoying tedious micromanagement thing like having to reassign where trade routes go every few turns oh you you could also just make it take slightly longer to make it go somewhere you direct as opposed to not yeah that's another thing you could do or actually being able to like queue up the order in which you'd like for it to annex yes, tile. Please, please log queuing in general and that queuing yeah, that as well. Right. Yes. Agree. Yes, not something that players would have to do, but you would be able to do so if you wanted to because you wanted to take that greater control and you felt comfortable in taking that greater control. Yeah. I think almost in a way, border expansion is... Uh, it's not so much that it's been rethought, I think, purposely, but incidentally, border expansion is now just not about your cultural output in your cities and then the game deciding, <clears throat> for better or worse, usually worse, as we're getting at, yeah. what, what your next tile is going to be. The loyalty mechanic introduced in the Rise and Fall expansion really is also a, mm, at a certain times, a practical border expansion. That even if on the map itself, mm, that's not your territory, but you got that settler highlighted, and oh gosh, that's uh, minus 10 loyalty right there, right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe at a certain point, particularly when I'm looking at the values of how you can try to combat that, maybe at a certain point, and I'm just going to use this right now as an arbitrary number because it's quote-unquote our first round number, you know, other than zero, lol. Let's say at negative 10, okay, the border expands to that hex or those hexes. When that happens, they're done. 
I almost feel like border expansion should also be tied into things like your population and your loyalty, because it's one thing for just culture to annex a tile. But if you've got really high culture, but really low population, you're annexing a bunch of tiles that you can't ever actually work. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, you could have really high population, really low culture, where you have more citizens than you have tiles to work. So I'm wondering if there might be room to revise the border expansion mechanics so that your population and your loyalty actually influence how quickly you annex tiles. Yeah, that could make sense of both gameplay and also reflective of realism. But besides the ability to control that territory, it's, well, we don't need all this extra territory because we don't have a population that needs it. But then if your population grows, uh, we need more room, we need more farms, we need more places for them to settle, even if it's really you know abstracted until neighborhoods come around in the game presently, or uh, just general housing. Yeah. And I definitely like mechanics where it's easier to fill in large gaps that are between your cities, especially when it's like completely enclosed. And seeing as how we're already able to use the great persons as an example, that you can either spend gold to rush or faith, it could stand a reason that rather than just expending gold, you could put in culture or you could put in faith and you could have some ratio where, yep, you could do it with gold, but that's going to be more expensive, whereas you could do it for a fraction of the cost if you used faith or culture. Yeah, more uses for faith is always good. <laughs> Boris Gendov appears in this thread as well, where he talks about two different elements, international borders, so between civs and city-states, and state-city borders representing the territory that can be accessed to support an individual city. The game botches both. The suggest attained to international borders might work with the provision that someone settling near to the recognized border may push loyalty influence into your territory and eventually move the border unless you settle the tiles with your own people, whereas the working tiles around a city need to change how they progress. Also, the spread of city tiles should be weighted towards tiles up and down rivers, around lakes, or along the coast from a city-state. That would also be the advantage of slightly increasing the value of coastal cities, which is already considered substandard by many players. Uh, 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 what? I'm sorry, what players are these? <laughs> the value of coastal cities, seeing as how you don't even have to settle on the coast anymore to take advantage of them with uh, harbor districts, I, I guess it really depends on the map. You've got a little bit of coast and you can't get here from there. I'm looking at you not being able to go across one of the other poles to make it across the map. Then sure, but I think that all kind of goes to the weighting of how the game in part, automatically decides what it's going to expand the border to. And if a player would like that greater control, your border will expand in four turns. Okay, well, in four turns, then you can ask it to give you a dialog box to say, where would you like to expand it to? And as long as it's an adjacent hex to, it's like, yeah, I, I would like my border to expand all the way over there. No, it needs to be adjacent to your existing tiles. Nice try. Then that would be just fine and dandy. Or just the cost scales up until it's you know prohibitively expensive to buy a tile that's not adjacent or that's sufficiently far away you want to get four or five hexes out no you can't buy that unless you want to spend a thousand gold and then in which case that would just buy that hex not the hexes necessary in order to get that so you have a contiguous border and that would be kind of awkward i mean i could see like okay i want to span my borders then this also gets into questions of after X many turns, how many hexes can your borders expand? Because right now it's just one, but it does come up, I think, in the thread that, yeah, from Supremacy King 2, that you could expand like three to four tiles in every direction. Maybe that could happen at once. I don't know exactly how that worked in Alpha Centauri, but that's okay. You want to expand out two or three, then you got to have the gold in order to be able to do that because you're not just buying one hex, you're buying three. I just wouldn't want it to be that you can go and have a tile that's not already contiguous to your empire. You would need to have some other kind of presence there, whether it was a city, we could reintroduce colonies or something like that. 
that you could then try to expand a border from. Otherwise, it would just be, you know, I think that person's going to try to settle there. I can't get there right now, but guess what? I'm going to buy that tile. I've banked that gold. What's this hex in the middle of nowhere that's owned by you? Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I would like the colonies better than that, though, because uh, there's plenty of times where we have marginal areas, like down in the tundra or the ice, where we need the resources down there, because very often the higher tech-level resources end up down there. <laughs> and you want to get that, but you don't necessarily want to build a city down there, but you also want to prevent the AI from building a city down there. Yeah, I would love to see for some kind of colony mechanic to come back. Not necessarily the way that it worked in Civ 3, but something analogous. I would also like to see what I call fourth hex ring screwjobs go away. Oh, hey, guess what? You have a source of coal. That's fantastic. Where is it? Uh, it's four hexes outside any city. <sighs> Like, I don't have to go and settle another city just in order to get that. I mean, maybe that would be advantageous, but can I not spend some gold, spend some culture, send somebody there, fortify the unit for X number of turns, and then if, because it's already adjacent to my border, so I can get that? Yeah. That would be nice to a return to that, because at least in Civilization V, your culture can continue to spread with sufficient pressure beyond those three hexes. The only option you have now is if you get that great merchant that allows you to buy adjacent hexes, but that great merchant usually comes up early enough in the game that, oh, I guess I could go ahead and buy the remaining hex, like second and third hex, in order to get this fourth one, but I might not have the gold for that. And even if you do get that, there's just one of them in the game, so... Mm -hmm. So I don't know if rethink how border expansion works. I don't know about rethink, but just retool. It's still going to expand, to me, based on your output of something. Your output of culture, which we can tie to, well, you want to increase your culture? Yeah, you can construct buildings in a city, but there's also incentive to increase the size of your empire. So more people means more cultural output. More cultural output means more pressure in order to be able to expand your territory automatically, give you discounts on what hex that you want or hexes that you even don't want. Hey, there'd be an option. (laughs) There's four different places this could expand to. Just don't expand to this one. Just to give you a little bit more control over that, I think would make it a lot better. Monthar says in the chat, allow building forts on those resources outside your borders to get access to the resorts. These would be outposts. Yeah, so you could actually have it so that a fort could also, by another name, fort outside your territory could also serve as a colony. I think if it was adjacent to your, well... And in that situation, a colony would not be something that would be necessarily congruent to your empire's borders. And you could have it like it have in Civilization Three, where you didn't have to send any other unit out other than, I mean, and again, in that case, it would be, I forget what kind of unit it was, um, that you would construct a colony. It might have been a worker, I think, that did that. You can go out and choose not to defend that if you want. It's just like sending a settler out and not escorting it. But if someone moves onto your hex with your colony then you would lose your colony. And the ability that the fort within your territorial borders would be a fort, but then if you had that same fortification that becomes an outpost, and you could choose to defend it or not in order to get access to a particular resource, you could have it work as a little bit like a like a trade route in terms of, okay, it's going to construct a road, and maybe because it's a colony, you need to wait five turns, ten turns in order to be able to take advantage of whatever that resource is as compared to, say, a trade route where the trader is already giving you whatever the output is that you want for those X number of turns. But it just takes the course of that trade route in order to complete the road. Colony might be see that a little differently because you're not trading with somebody else. There's nobody else on the other end. 
<laughs> to trading with. It's just a resource. I like a lot of these little tweaks to the system that we've got in Sys6. I do want to put it in a little bit broader context in, the, in terms of the border problem, though, in that this is one of those issues that we complain about in every single Civ game. We complain about the absence of borders all the way back in Civ 2 and getting forward settled and losing things from our fat cross so that we couldn't, you know, suddenly we couldn't um, work the territory that we'd been working previously. So we introduced borders and Sid Meier's Alpha Centauri and those automatically popped out. But then what would happen is the AI would settle next year borders and it would move in what appeared to be a random fashion. So again, same thing, you would lose the territory. So now we've created all of these complicated mechanisms that the one hand still let the borders move by border pressure and things like that. But at the same time, don't let you have all the territory to start with. And we complain about that. So I don't know. I mean, if I were the devs, I'd be really frustrated with the player base and just like, I don't know what you want. How do I, why would I spend time working on this? The response from the dev is there's this thing called the modding community. You might want to check them out. (laughs) (laughs) In general. (laughs) Just go with the modders. You know what? I can just see Frax and 2K. You know what? Civilization 7 is different. The community is going to design it, and we're going to play test it and critique it. See how you like them apples. That would be a dangerous move to make. Very. Very, very dangerous move to make. Episode 311, Udan Q, Makalua, with me and team, Megavares fan, and Sedwick. Last year, forum user Justifier NA came out with an extensive strategy guide with a focus on multiplayer. Topics so broad, we're going to split up its coverage. The first three, including settings. He recommends certain game and interface options, such as enabling quick combat and movement, and auto-download additional content, and disabling auto-end-turn and the advisor. Uh, He cites having some keystroke assignments ready for some things like ranged attack, skip turn, found city, next action, and next ready unit. Basics. He goes over to the best 16 basic tips like get a Pantheon now and chop everything that yields production. Other interesting tips include not letting other players block you from getting classical great generals and killing city-states, since you'll get more from it as a captured city that comes preloaded with districts and yields than any bonuses a city-state will ever give over the life over the game. Plus, then you get to deny the other players those bonuses. There's a general goals section where he talks about different defense and offense tactics. His second part under general goals is income. And then there's a third section on infrastructure, which apparently is a work in progress. I've got no issues whatsoever with regards to the settings, and this is multiplayer, whether it's cooperative or competitive. The whole, oh, auto unit cycling and the map moving on you when you're trying to do something when there's a turn timer, oh my gosh, please, no. Visor being disabled, yeah, if you're playing multiplayer, you're probably feeling comfortable enough with the game that you're not going to need that. I don't need the additional time to remove you, thank you. The suggestions for the change in the key bindings where the keys are very close together, but on a different level. You know, like for example, ranged attack and sleep. Okay, I want to range attack this, and that's R. S is for sleep. They're not directly side by side, so you're less likely to accidentally click one when you mean the other, but they're easily accessible with one hand on the keyboard with a couple of fingers. I like that when timing is so critical, especially but not limited to competitive multiplayer. The basics, the things that jump out to me right away are the things that I say, wait, what? 10. Kill city-states. Not sure why people don't do this as much as possible, but blah, 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 blah. My question is, why are you running city-states? If this is competitive multiplayer, 
why would you have city-states on the map to begin with? And this goes back to Civilization V, too. I just feel like we're dealing with a, a symptom, not a cause of a potential issue here. And then the other thing, the get a religion thing, I am just not feeling it. I know he talks about that going to deny someone else a victory type in the progress if you get a religion. Well, most MP, that just ends up being incidental because either I'm going to go and I'm going to get an army and I'm going to squash your religion before you ever get a chance to do that. It's just the investment and the time and the energy and the effort into getting a religion. I'm just not seeing it. Well, if uh, nobody tries to get a religion at all, the investment required to get it is relatively light. So it really depends on how you anticipate your opponents behaving. It's not like a single player game where the AI is always gunning for this and you have to really sell out to get a religion. If nobody else ever pursues it, you could easily on like a fourth city, drop down one holy site and build it for a while. You got your profit, you got a religion. Okay. Pantheon is definitely worth pushing pretty quickly. Oh, definitely. But uh, religion is situational. Of course, if everybody you're playing with is adhering to the strategy guide, then everyone else should also be going for a religion, which means it should suddenly become hyper-competitive once again and therefore not worth doing. Yeah, that's true. So it's a bit of a playing around the meta thing, but I don't agree with always going for it, but I certainly don't agree with always skipping it when everyone else is not necessarily trying to get one. Well, if everybody gets God of the Forge, which is usually banned, then yeah. <laughs> God of the Forge plus 25% production towards ancient and classical units. I mean, unless you're doing a competitive game that's outside of those eras, that starts outside of those eras, then I guess you're probably not too concerned about that. And, and of course, that also stacks with the policy card that you run to increase your production by 50% on such things, no less. So do you ban Goddess of the Harvest or no, just Forge? <laughs> Oh, yes, God's Harvest provides faith equal to the yields of any resource harvested. I have not heard of that being banned like God of the Forge, but argument to be made for that. It it depends on what it gives. At the moment, though, and it says this in the multiplayer guide as well, the amount of faith you get from it due to how the chopping interacts with Magnus and such gets pretty stupid. And that one's a persistent benefit. People are talking in the forums like hundreds of faith on one chop, which you have the ability to spend it to get certain things can be ridiculous. Standard speed, too, by the way. You just do like one or two of those and you've got yourself a religious building. Yeah. Plus, you've still got all the benefits of the chop, which are already excellent. Totally agreeing at the second suggestion under the basics, melee plus ranged unit first, definitely. Given how quickly you can get them, the cost reduction, Goji, as mentioned here, that's the policy card for that. And also with the melee units and tying into hopefully being able to find yourself some iron to be able to upgrade into swordsman, but I'm totally on board with that. Yes, catapults, I know there's the battering ram, which is, yes, very, very... It's actually, it's too good. But yes, initially melee and ranged units first. If like, yeah, you're eventually going to get to somebody else's city, I'm assuming, and in a competitive game or even a cooperative game where you're going after the AI, you know, in order to get to the city, you got to clear the land of the other units or at least give yourself a path to those particular cities. Then yes, you need to concentrate on those units first. I do want to, I think, add one thing to uh, part 16, shop everything that yields production the writer doesn't say anything about overflow bonuses and stuff like that. So I I would like to add that, yes, you do want to chop, but you still want to be thoughtful in when and what you're chopping. So if given the choice between chopping now or waiting a couple turns to enact a policy that's going to give you 50% or 100% modifier towards production, you should wait until you've got that policy in effect before you do the chop. Yeah, for sure. And also cycling Magnus for it and all that. 
Yeah, if you can spare the few turns that it takes for him to move. I think if you plan well, you can almost always spare. Because it's a pretty significant bonus. Yes, it is. Even after being nerfed. Yes. Right? Didn't they nerf it from like 100 to 50 or something like that? They nerfed it, and it's still good. Relatedly, under 7, under the basics, explore as much as possible. Yes, find all the other civilizations for trade, and specifically their capital for spies. And I'm thinking, yes, we get... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in a competitive game, I suppose, you want to construct a road. It's going to take some time. You have the trader just to send that there. But yes, you want to find where they are so you know where they are, where you might settle subsequent cities, where it is you need to go to attack. But he also makes reference to stay away from the poles with scouts because they contain lots of barbs. Avoid all barbarians like the plays. Scouting on the map tells you barbarian encampment spawns. In a competitive game, why are barbarians enabled? I mean, just in general, even in single player, the issues with barbarians. But in a multiplayer situation, I'm not certain yeah. what the advantage to having barbs on is. And they are a strategic consideration, but the consistently variant degree that they influence civs and their ability to just screw you in the first five, ten turns before you really have any counterplay whatsoever make it so that if you put that on, you're basically removing some legitimacy of the competitive nature of the game, just straight up. You're just telling everybody who comes in the game, well, I hope you don't roll a natural one on the barbarians and get screwed. Yeah. They'll never kill you, but if you're playing people equal skill and you just get, like, scouted turn four, you're probably not going to win. And now, yeah, you're going to be crippled the entire game. I generally uh, tend to specialize my cities, number eight. You know, I have one I focus on science, one for the religion, the holy site, obviously, and then my capital has the first big production, so I put most of my military stuff there, like the encampment. I would like to point out, number 11, stick to leader's agenda. I don't play very much multiplayer, let alone competitive multiplayer, but that one does sound very suspect to me. If you've got a leader with a pacifist agenda, like, say, Gandhi, uh, you probably shouldn't be following that. I am not. <laughs> the stick to leader's agenda is very situational. Kind of like the religion argument as well. Like, I mean, this person suggests, playing America, you get a plus five bonus for all combat on your continent, so why not expand to control the whole continent since it's going to be super easy to control it? Right. Okay, yeah. Because yeah. that's a military... Exactly. ...bonus and a military agenda. But like I said, if you picked Gandhi or rolled Gandhi from random, you probably don't want to stick to that agenda. Yeah. Or any civilization that's focused on, like, faith or pantheons or religion, because, as we said earlier, rarely ever should religion be the focus of a multiplayer game. Number 11, stick to leader's agenda. That is definitely not a universal basic. That's a very leader-to-leader specific thing. There's a pretty solid dividing line for most of them. There's very little gray. I would imagine people will pick their civilization and would therefore stay away from the really low tier stuff like Norway or Spain or whatever. Huh. Like I'd imagine you'd see a ton of Rome or Samaria or Nubia or yeah, yeah. more civs uh, like that. Scythia. Yeah. If you ended up in a situation where you were assigned a civ in the setup or it was completely random, then in that case, okay, you should be paying attention to what's going on. It's been rolled to you or given to you. But yes, otherwise, I think most people would tend to stay away from those that have agendas that, if not detracting from them, or what you're probably doing in a competitive situation, then you're looking for something that's going to give you an advantage. <laughs> I laugh at the first part for number six because we talked about this on a recent episode about time to retire a certain title of something. And we agreed we were going to retire this title, and we disagreed with what the suggested is, but it's a... The terms tall and wide do not apply to Civilization VI, so do not use them. More cities is always better. 
Well, it yes. applies. It just doesn't apply in the same way. They are not mutually exclusive anymore is the big difference. Well, more cities is better is definitely the correct advice in Sim 6. True. But if you get all of those cities tall, that is also better. Yeah, absolutely. Because they're not mutually exclusive. Whereas in Civ 5, you had that global happiness cap that meant you had yeah, to choose to go wide or to go tall. Yes. In Civ 6. That's the element of Civ 5 is trash. Yeah, it's not wide slash tall. It's wide ampersand tall. Yes. Wide, good, tall, from wide, better. You should be in a state of perpetual expansion, always looking for new territory to expand to for the following reasons. New unique luxuries, more territory, infrastructure, brackets, roads, to simply to deny all of the above to other people. <laughs> yes, well. But not in the polls. Because screw the polls. <laughs> That's the global polls, not the people polls. All hate mail. <laughs> yeah. Mega Bears fan just, just specifically targets Poland every game. It doesn't yeah, matter if no. they're on another continent. He'll beeline down <laughs> the naval path just to attack Poland every game. Uh, Nobody thought you were thinking about Poland specifically, Jason, until you made that very specific denial that you were suggesting <laughs> Poland. <laughs> I am a little bit surprised that the strategy doesn't mention getting your research districts up very early so that you can get to the text to unlock those first couple of unit upgrades. Well, you're going straight into the unit tech immediately. And the deviation to go for writing, make a campus district, and then go into military tech. If someone scouts you and they don't see an encampment, or especially if they see a campus, you're dead. I was saying that campuses should be like a first or second priority. I'm just surprised that after the encampments, it weren't like, oh, and then do research campuses so that you can upgrade your units. I, I guess. I mean, because they after can't that, tell you like, everything you in a guide and well, writing is kind of on the path. Yeah. After that, though, there aren't any other districts that you really should be going for at all. Yeah. Trade districts, military districts and research districts. Those are the three that you build. Right. Like I said, I don't play too much competitive multiplayer, but from what I've heard from you guys, it sounds like that's, you know, how it works. I mean, all the districts have their place to some degree. Like you you want culture progression because you get some pretty strong benefits as you go down that tree. And as you have more and more cities, you will work in a theater district, for example, just so that you can get access to better military policies, if nothing else. And the government. So it makes some sense. Oh, yeah, and of course, and better governments. Although you're going to be an oligarchy for a while in MP, I'd guess. Right, yeah. But uh, some of the options you can get, or like just you, you gain the benefit of surround and pound from flanking, which is pretty significant. Or you get better yields from your tiles. Like that stuff is all useful. It's right. worth you, getting. You want to get Considering the relative costs. Some districts will cost less compared to ones you've built a lot of already. So as you have your cities grow and you've already got the number of encampments you need, you already have campus slash commercial hub, you're going to work some of this stuff in. Yeah, you definitely need to make sure that you get to military tradition and uh, political philosophy ASAP. Yeah. yeah, it is odd that the guide does not mention a campus district at all. I would think that probably would only need one. And it also depends on the scouting and what type of map you're playing and where people are. How much are you going to need that tech push in order to get to what it is that you need to do? Because, yeah, early on, the culture is more important. And particularly if you're getting rid of these city-states, which we suggested, then, yeah, like you could certainly make an argument that you're not getting enough culture from just the monument. But, yes, at, at some point there should be. At some point there should be. But the game might be over so quickly that, yeah, it's definitely not a first 
priority encampment. And then another district, maybe generally after that, I would probably say a commercial hub in a competitive situation or maybe a harbor if there's something more water-based. All right. As far as the general goals go, talking about, speaking of technology, yeah, bronze working is high in your priorities list because it reveals iron, of course, that you need to upgrade to swordsman, which then, of course, means that you then need to go to ironworking. He talks about the strengths of ironworking, the upgradable. You can go from warriors into swordsmen. It scales in the mid-game with oligarchy and oligarchy legacy. Extremely likely to get a great general to back them up. Weaknesses of ironworking, low mobility. Mm, well, you got the great general there. That's going to help you a little bit with that. But, yeah, you're not guaranteed to have iron to upgrade for new swordsmen, as you cannot see iron from the beginning of the game. So that's just kind of a, well, you know what? I'm just going to invest in an all-warrior army. Because I'm going to be able to upgrade them, and I've got my commercial hub, and I'm just making, making money. And then you realize that not only do you not have iron, but in order to get iron that you see, uh, I'm going to have to construct a settler. It's going to have to get there. It's going to have to be escorted. i got to get a builder. Like, oh. How good is the balanced start option at giving all players access to both iron and horses? Or does it not even care about that? Does it just care about resources in general? I put it on in our games when I host, and I've found resources pretty consistently, but that's limited sample size considering my memory. But like, I, in terms of standard, I don't play with standard a lot. Is it typically missing iron? Yes, it is. On okay. all my single player games on you know standard, you know my experience anyway has been I either have several horses or I have several iron, but I never have both, and sometimes I have neither. And you're going to be fa- having to settle a second or possibly even a third city in order to get one of one or the other. Yeah, the, yeah. the, the first source is yeah going to be your first or second expansion city. But I was just asking because I'm assuming that in competitive multiplayer, most players are probably playing with the balanced uh, yeah. start you, setting. You really so should I'm, if you want to have any credibility of it being a real competitive game. Right. Yes. So I'm, I'm just wondering how much these notes here about the resource availability actually applies with that setting in play. Like, does the balanced start actually mean that, yeah, you pretty much are guaranteed to have easy access to iron or is that not the case? It's pretty likely from what I gather that you'll get it. So this second weakness of ironworking is maybe not as much of a pitfall as the strategy writer may be suggesting, because in most cases in competitive multiplayer, you're on balanced start, so you're... Well, they might not, for whatever reason. I've seen all kinds of weird rules used in competitive scenarios that really don't belong there. That's true in Game of the Month, that's true in Hall of Fame, and it's true in a lot of these uh, custom role setups for multiplayer as well. So they might not be playing with balanced, even though balanced is objectively better if you want to have a game decided on skill. We didn't really talk a whole lot about looking at demographics and great people screen and all that, did we? No, no. If you look at the progress there, that tells you a lot about what people have invested in. Like, you don't even have to have scouted somebody to see that they're or very much like you just know that they exist and then you can tell that they're investing in like an early great scientist for example you could pick up on that using only demographic data and if you really are careful can even back extrapolate what kind of policy cards they're running how many cities they have a lot of that stuff without really scouting them out and that makes a big difference because that can change how you invest your resources to defend it's hard to do in real time on a timer but if you're doing like a multiplayer game that isn't on a timer, this stuff becomes enormously important. It's on the level of monitoring demographics in Civ 4, which if you're an elite player, you have to do. 
Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call in today. In North America, 301-637-7659. In Europe, 44-121-288-7659. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. Log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. Record date assorted. 2018. Civilization 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 clips. Copyright Take 2 Interactive. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.